swinging a big sledgehammer. He came to tear down walls. Ephesians 2.14, Paul writes, He is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall of petition, division. Now in context, of course, we all know in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles. But in our context, here in our land in 2013, man, we could be talking about race. Our nation is frothing and foaming with all the turmoil concerning the Zimmerman and Trevon Martin verdict, of course. We could be talking about politics, the blue states, the red states. And I am indeed here at Greenville Oaks this morning to talk about color, that the rainbow of God's love includes gray. Did Keith call me old a few minutes ago? He he came mighty close, didn't he? (laughs) Hey, I love gray. It's a part of the rainbow. Well, I think it's already been announced to you in weeks past that no, gray's not really in a rainbow, is it? Let's put it in the rainbow. How about that? I think it was announced to you in weeks past about this collaboration, this partnership between uh, Greenville Oaks Congregation and Christian Care Center. Lord willing, you're going to see a rise behind you on this gorgeous property, a complex of apartments. Right now, the site plan calls for 78 apartments and duplexes to include a clubhouse in the middle, 14 independent living apartments, uh, 32 assisted living apartments, duplexes, 32 memory care units. Your leaders here at Greenville Oaks, they're serious about having a vision here for Allen, Texas, of, uh, of outreach commission. That, that, that's one of the myths about Christian Care Center, by the way, that you've got to be a member of the Church of Christ to live there. Actually, only about a third of our members are members of Churches of Christ. We have people from all stripes and flavors. Because we are faith-based, we do tend to attract people of, of faith. But we have a, a wonderful heated uh, swimming pool in our fitness center in Mesquite. And that has served as a baptistry multiple times in our ministry. But beyond that, there's this incredible opportunity that I foresee and, and that you'll have in years ahead for this intergenerational ministry, this give and take between your young people and the seniors who are living in this community and also their involvement and engagement. They still want to serve and minister. And there will be all types of opportunities that you will have in years ahead to engage in this type of community ministry with the people literally in your backyard. We have a chairman of the board at Christian Care Center who's quite a visionary. Uh, You know him and love him. Actually, he's one of your shepherds here. And Brother Harold has envisioned 12 such communities on church properties here in the North Texas area. We did an exhaustive demographic study And Allen is first. Your demographics are just perfect for this community. Uh, We have about a dozen congregations, by the way, that are already lining up behind you and saying, uh, we want to be next, we want to be next. We envision all types of, of intergenerational ministries happening because of this new complex. Well, this old couple began to prudently plan for their retirement years They had updated their wills and their life insurance, and they were trying to get their home uh, senior-friendly. They were watching their diets and exercise meticulously. Man, they'd been married so long, they couldn't even not remember not being married. 
They're preparing for the retirement years. Nice, sweet, calm, golden retirement years. And then, and then, and then, I'm in Genesis chapter 17 and invite your attention this morning if you have your Old Testament. Genesis 17. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, Behold, as for me, my covenant is with you, and shall be with your, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make uh, nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. Then drifting down to verse um, 15, I'm in Genesis 17. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall become the mother of nation. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham, you remember what happens next? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah, who is a ninety-year-old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might come before thee. Now Abraham and Sarah, they're ninety-nine and ninety years old. They laugh. You remember that Sarah laughs too. They both laugh. And they're going to have a child born to them, this little boy named Isaac, and that word means laughter. God says to Abraham, you're going to have a multitude of descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And from you, from your loins and from Sarah will come the long-awaited one, the Messiah, who will be the blessing to all the nations. You thought, you thought retirement was going to be about, I don't know, rocking chairs and TV dinners and watching Wheel of Fortune and but now when you rock, you're going to have a bouncing little boy on your lap. There are going to be diapers at 100 and a college tuition at 120. You thought, you thought you had it all mapped out. You thought you had it all figured out. But now, now I'm going to reach down into your life, and life is going to be altogether different. Someone said, if you want to make Jehovah laugh, then you announce to him your plans. What's, what's your plans five years from now, five months from now, five minutes from now? you want to hear God laugh, you tell him your plans. You thought you had it all figured out, but now Abraham, oh buddy, oh pal, my friend, the faithful one, Abraham, the best is yet to be. Robert Browning put those words in Rabbi Ben Ezra's mouth, grow old along with me, the best is yet to be, the last of life for which the first was made, our times are in his hand. Abraham learned that the best was yet to be. Trust God and be not afraid. Well, Abraham and Sarah had made a big mistake 13 years earlier. And the mistake has a name, Ishmael. For the sake of time, I'll not rehearse the story. It's in Genesis 16 is the backstory, And I've always been partial to this story somehow. I guess being raised by a single mom myself, here is a Hagar, this Egyptian handmaiden, raising little Ishmael and their outcasts. But God provides for her. 
in the wilderness of Beersheba, this uh, spring of water, well of water springing forth. But my point is, God didn't bench Abraham and Sarah because of Ishmael. God didn't disqualify them because of this mistake that they had made. And truth is, all of us have had an Ishmael. I've had an Ishmael. I have regrets. Maybe you do too. But God used, continued to use, Abraham and Sarah. Not only did God forgive their Ishmaels, in fact, He's even going to bless Ishmael. Drift down in verse 20 of Genesis 17. God says He's going to bless him, and He's going to be the father of uh, princes, 12 princes, and He too will be the father and the progenitor of a great nation. Let me tell you something about us old folks. Uh, We've weathered the seasons of life. You become a battle-scarred veteran after a while. (laughs) Seen it all, debt and death and divorce and woe and heartache and trouble. And through it all, through it all, through it all, the good Lord has been uh, faithful. And somehow you you learn wisdom and compassion, maybe that young folks just couldn't possibly have. And now, here you are, battle-scarred, ready to be used as a wise uh, counselor, a mentor for those on the journey behind you. Why do we segregate old from young like we do? I mean, it starts out here in the church parking lot. If you think about it, you know, five-year-olds this way and 15-year-olds over here and 25-year-olds go this way and 55-year-olds are here and 75-year-olds. If there are any of you around, just, I don't know, go to the library. (laughs) Don't I remember Paul saying something about the older teaching the younger? I grew up in Middle Tennessee in the 50s and 60s with overt racism. It wasn't subtle at all. There was some subtle racism, but some very overt as well. And I see another type of ism at work in our society and our churches today. You know what I'm talking about? Age-ism. Rabbi... Abraham J. Herschel wrote, A test of a people is how it behaves toward the old. It's easy to love children. Even tyrants and dictators make a point of being fond of children. But the affection and care for the old, the incurable, the helpless are the true gold mines of a culture. C.S. Lewis, the Christian theologian, just uh, a month or two before he died, wrote a letter to one of his friends, and he's talking about uh, how the fall, the season of the fall of the year has become his favorite season of the year. And then he goes on to say that the fall of life has become his favorite season of life. Well, I've been involved with Christian Care Center ever since 1976 when Mama moved there for the last 12 years of her life. Uh, Served on the board of trustees ever since 1993. Went to work for Christian Care Center about two and a half years ago and such. And I've learned some lessons last uh, few years from the, the seniors, from the greatest generation. You know, as the NBC News icon, um, uh, Tom Brokaw, that gave that, that name, greatest generation, to the people who grew up during, World War, uh, were, during the Depression and then were alive and often serving during World War II. And I've got seven lessons this morning. Don't let that scare you too bad, but I've got seven <laughs> lessons. I'll try to do them briefly, that I've learned from this greatest generation. Tom Brokaw starts off his book, The Greatest Generation, telling about uh, growing up in a little town in South Dakota. His mama was the, school, was the uh, post, 
master postmistress of this little town. And this was somewhere during the 50s. He was telling the story about a young man somewhere in his 20s that had come into the post office that one morning, and he was griping and complaining about the shenanigans of young people the previous night. It had been Halloween the night before, and evidently some of the young people had got into some mischief and shenanigans. And this young man named Gar- Gordon Larson was griping and complaining to uh, Mrs. Brokaw about their shenanigans, and, and she just kind of, she's trying to pacify Gordon and, 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 and wave him down, calm him down. She says, oh, Gordon, what were you doing when you were 17 years old? And Gordon looks at her solemnly and says, I was landing on Guadalcanal. And he turned on his heel and marched out of the post office. Our older generation, the greatest generation, just by life experiences, have matured. They matured early. I was doing a funeral several years ago for an elder at the Saturn Road Church, Brother Charles Carroll. I knew Charles had been a World War II veteran. I'd seen his purple heart, even seen his scars from burns that he'd received as when he was in the Marines as a young man. But as his funeral, his two sons, one a doctor and one a dentist, were telling stories about their dad, talking about the, Charles of 17 years old, his very first night in combat on Guadalcanal, his position, his foxhole is charged by the enemy. Charles is in hand-to-hand combat. He, uh, he slays this Japanese colonel. He sits on his body all night long, anticipating further kamikaze waves of attack. What were you doing when you were 17 years old? What were you doing when you were 17? Here they are. Lesson number one. I've got seven of them. Lesson number one, take personal responsibility for your life. Personal responsibility. Listen, this generation is not a generation of whiners or excuse makers. They believe in self-sufficiency. They believe in taking personal accountability and responsibility for their life. They don't believe in doles and handouts and giveaways. Ephesians chapter 6 tells of this spiritual battle in which we are engaged every single day. Stand firm, therefore. Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the evil one. And then Paul delineates this armor that we are to wear each day. It's a daily battle. Revelation 12, 12 says that the evil one, the red dragon, he's come down to our world and he's full of anger, full of wrath. Verse 17 of Revelation 12, who's he after? Who's our target? He's after us, the believers. Teresa and I, my wife, thank you, Keith, for mentioning uh, Teresa being here. Uh, today. Teresa's senior vice, I should have introduced her when I first began, but Teresa's uh, senior vice president at Christian uh, Care Center over marketing and fundraising and such. And we had taken a, a trip to Israel back in 2008. And so we saw so many wonderful things. And, but on the plains of Megiddo, which is one of the famous battlegrounds of the Old Testament. I think our guide said there had been 16 great battles fought in the Old Testament on the plains of Megiddo. And I was kind of yawning my way through that until he said, you know, it's mentioned in the New Testament, don't you? I'm thinking, really? And then he mentions Revelation 12, uh, 16, 16. We know it as the battle of Armageddon. Armageddon, he said that word means the hills of Megiddo. And our guide made the great point of saying that instead of thinking of Armageddon as one great cataclysmic uh, apocalyptic battle between good and evil at the end of time. Maybe we ought to think of it as every single day we fight Armageddon. Isn't that right? Every single day we're in a spiritual battle. 
Well, this is the generation that had learned to take personal responsibility for their lives in this battle. Lesson number two, be frugal, be frugal. This is a generation that they came home from the war. They uh, built homes out here in Allen, out in the suburbs. They bought Chevys. They maintained them. They learned to live on less. They were just grateful for what they had. Uh, I enjoy hearing stories from our seniors at Christian Care Center. It, it doesn't take the latest electronic gizmo to make them happy at Christmas. They, they'll talk about times when they were young, at Christmas time, would roll around, and if they just had an orange in the toe of their stocking, that was okay, as long as their family were surrounding them. Tom Brokaw talks about his dad, Red Brokaw, that he was a part of this greatest generation, that he was a, he calls him a blue member, a blue ribbon member of the fix-it generation. Were your parents or your grandparents like this? He said all his mama had to do was just mention that she needed something and his dad would disappear out into his workshop and build it. She needed a new ironing board and he'd, he'd come out in the work, a workshop and come back with an ironing board. Well, Tom Brokaw said when he was a kid in the, in the 50s that uh, power lawnmowers were new. Are any of you nearly as old as me and can remember a push lawnmower before there were gasoline? Yeah, some of you can get that. He said all how he wanted a gasoline-powered lawnmower, all the money he could make mowing grass in the summer, and he told his dad he wanted this lawnmower. Well, guess what? His dad disappears into the workshop and with some discarded wagon wheels and a wa- an old washer uh, motor and some blades and a plywood platform, he makes this, uh, this uh, lawnmower. And Tom Brokaw says it's a formidable machine. He paints it all black. And first he was embarrassed about it, but then it began to have admirers, and then he said he kind of grew proud of his home place, homespun place in a store-bought world. Lesson number three. I'm talking about lessons from our seniors, the greatest generation. Be humble. Be humble. Typical of this greatest generation is this. Uh, I've heard it's somewhere between 1,100 and 1,800 of the greatest generation die each day, World War II veterans. Here's, here's what happens. The kids or the grandkids disappear up in the attic. They're rummaging around through granddaddy's stuff, and they find a war medal. And, and their, their grandfather or their father had never talked about his exploits in the war. Uh, part of it is because they just don't want to remember the H-E-double-L of it all, the carnage of it all. And part of it is because, well, they just simply said that they were doing their jobs. They trudged across northern Africa and Europe, fighting their way inexorably toward Berlin. They hunkered down in foxholes in the South Pacific, uh, inexorably heading toward uh, Tokyo. Their wives and moms and girlfriends stayed home, watched the mailboxes. Oh, my, if one of those big old olive green government cars came lumbering down the street, everyone's heart froze. Well, the moms and wives and girlfriends, uh, they went to work in the factories and the shipyards, churning out the vital war materials. And as these quiet heroes tell their stories about World War II, there's no chest pounding. There's no bravado. They were simply trying to rid their world of monsters and make it a safer place for the generation to come. Lesson number four, the greatest generation loved loyally. Loved loyally. Marriage to this generation was a a covenant. 
a real commitment. And we see that every day in our Christian Care Center campuses. Despite fragile health, despite declining memories, despite, I don't know, just the ebb and flow in the tide of life, this uh, commitment that we have in our older couples. Divorce was never an easy option when hard times came. They didn't know anything about prenuptial agreements. They stayed true blue to their covenants. Marriage was about covenant, not convenience, but covenant. Lesson number five, work hard, work hard. In war, these men had learned to focus on their mission at hand, to accomplish their mission. They come back to the States, and they've got that same kind of work ethic of accomplishing their mission. They didn't fall for this fallacy that you had to find your passion at your job in order to be happy. (laughs) They just found a job. They went to work. Their passion was to provide for their families. Uh, They didn't have much growing up during the Depression years. Their transcendent value became just to provide better for their families than what they had had. They were knights armored in blue serge suits or blue-collared shirts. And our kids want it all uh, right now, don't they? Teresa, I'm thinking about our own two kids. Our son, uh, Shane, is uh, 35, and uh, he's got three kids, and he, uh, he lives in Garland. He, he teaches at Dallas Christian School. He's a football coach and a senior, the uh, senior high Bible teacher at Dallas Christian School. Three little kids. Some of you actually may know something of him because he was kind of a news story back a couple of years ago in Christian Chronicle. He had taken a group of students from uh, Dallas Christian School to Africa, and had contracted malaria, and oh, he was so deathly ill for, for so long. But he's, he's doing great. But as our son, our daughter, we were over in Burleson uh, yesterday. Uh, Burleson is where my son-in-law, uh, Mark Simmons, is the uh, youth minister and involvement minister and such, and that's a great church. And we were, they, they're building a new house, and we were walking through their, their uh, it's been framed out now, and seeing where their rooms are going to be. Our young people want it all right now. They have more than Teresa and I have. <laughs> but for this greatest generation, they thought that it was to be by the sweat of your brow. They eschewed easy credit. Lesson number, lesson number six, don't make life so complicated. Don't make life so complicated. Men and women of this generation, they didn't obsess about finding themselves or finding the holy grail of a guy or a gal that uh, exist only in fantasy. Man, they just met a gal in the town square <laughs> and they married them and they lived happily ever after raising their families. The greatest generation didn't diet. They didn't join health clubs. Uh, they don't go to spas. <laughs> they just work hard. They play hard. This is the generation of bedrock faith in God above. This generation, the greatest generation, man, they just love God. They just love the church and they're still loyal to it, name brand loyal, even to churches of Christ. Not so much our younger people, but for sure, this generation. By the way, do you know the fastest growing religious group in America? It's not the Muslims, it's not the Mormons. According to the Pew Research Council, the fastest growing religious group in America are the, are the nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. People that say, oh yeah, love God, I'm spiritual minded, but don't have any type of 
real church affiliations. By the way, that's your challenge amongst many. Every congregation's challenge here at Greenville Oaks. How are you going to connect with the nuns? How are you going to show that you are relevant and viable in their world? This generation, they're not interested. I'm talking about the oldest, the greatest generation now. They're not interested in trends or polls or shortcuts or market research to dictate to them about their faith. They don't need Hollywood celebrities. They're not interested in Washington or Austin politicians. They don't care what the Madison Avenue executives have to say about things. They know what they believe. This is the generation that actually still believes in absolutes. It's not going to take the Supreme Court to define for the greatest generation what marriage is. They know what marriage is. It's it's deep in their DNA. They're not particularly interested in, you know, being high tech. The worship trends that we bring back from ACU or Pepperdine, uh, they're not particularly interested in. This generation simply loves the church. (laughs) Committed to, man, they storm the beaches of Normandy with casseroles when there's someone ill in your congregation. This is a generation that will still go to the baby showers and the the wedding showers of people they don't know here at Greenville Oaks just because they're loyal to your church. They may not know the people, but they're loyal to your church. To this generation, the expression of faith and how best to live life is not so complicated. Last lesson. This may be the most important. The greatest generation still yearns to be of value. They want to be needed. They want to see purpose in their lives. I learned this last fall. It was underlined for me. I went to visit. We have a a large Fort Worth campus as well. It's beautiful. It's called Lakewood Village. And I was visiting in our assisted living community. And I'd gotten my my times wrong or something because everybody had gone to the Texas State Fair. That's why I remember it was fall. And all that was left up there in assisted living was my little friend Geneva. And Geneva was 97 years old, and we were just kind of visiting about our life. And she had lost two husbands. One had been a, a prisoner of war during World War II for three and a half years in prison by the Japanese, and he had passed away. She had married again, and that husband had passed away. She's 97 years old. She said the hardest thing in her life had been the death of her own son, and I can imagine that too. So I'm hearing about Geneva's life. It's time for me to go to shuffle on to do another devotional. And I said, Geneva, anything I can pray with you before I go? And she pauses for a moment, and 97-year-old Geneva says, Brother Scott, pray that I can still find a purpose for my life. I'm telling you that our older generations still want purpose and value, and meaning. I hear that countless ways across our community. Somebody find the word retirement for me in Scripture. (laughs) Uh, We're inundated at Christmas at Christian Care Center with youth groups coming from every which direction to sing Christmas carols and bring candy canes, and that's wonderful. Of course, I always think, yeah, but where are you in July? Hello. (laughs) But even beyond that, what I'm really saying right now is it's, it's our residence That would love to go and sing some carols and take some candy canes somewhere. They still want purpose and meaning and value in their life. You know Bill Ifring. Bill is 78 years old. You saw him on the day of the Boston Marathon bombing. You saw the replay of that clip many times. The little man that right at the finish of the Boston Marathon 
got knocked over by the explosion and he wobbled and his knees buckled and he fell and attendants came, uh, emergency personnel came to attend to Bill. But what you didn't know is that Bill hopped up and he kept running and he finished the Boston Marathon. In fact, he ran on to his hotel room. That was his third marathon, 78-year-old Bill Ifring. Oh, you know about Joe the barber in uh, Hartford, Connecticut? For the last 25 years, he's been somehow hooking his clippers up to his car battery and, and uh, cutting hair of the homeless at a public park in Hartford, Connecticut. Did you see the little Japanese gentleman? I think it was three weeks ago that summited Mount Everest, 80 years old. Summited Mount Everest. Abraham and Sarah, they hit their stride in the sunset years. And 3,000 years later, that's what we want as well. We still want Isaacs to raise. We still want to be able to bless the generations beyond us. So my challenge to us this, this morning is, hey, let's remember and salute and honor those who who shed blood for our nation. Those who built the infrastructures of our cities, our communities. Those who built our churches. Those who've planted the trees, whose fruit we now enjoy, whose shade we now recline under. Lessons learned from the greatest generation. God bless you. Thank you.